1: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on The agenda. We're a chat about the settlement of Aotearoa, New Zealand, which took place a great many centuries ago when Polynesian explorers arrived on its shores and began to settle down to live there. Now, these explorers, as you probably know, became known as the Māori, uh, although that's not what they called themselves, as we'll talk about uh, initially at least. Um, And uh, after arriving in Aotearoa in around the mid-14th century, uh, as I say, they settled down there for good They spread across uh, New Zealand's North and South Islands They adapted to their new and very different homeland Most notably, uh, its climate was very, very different to uh, the place they'd come from And in time, they developed their own specific and, uh, and distinct culture Uh, And while the Māori lacked writing, their histories were passed down all the same through a rich oral tradition, leaving us today with a pretty good understanding of the pre-European history of Aotearoa. And then, of course, when the Europeans did arrive, uh, that history would change forever, and that is something we'll also get into today. Uh, the Maori lived in Aotearoa for centuries before Europeans turned up But once they, once they did, their homeland would never be the same More and more Europeans arrived and settled there, calling it New Zealand And eventually it would become a British colony But we'll talk more about that next week uh, When we more fully discuss the Treaty of Waitangi And all of the uh, complex consequences that came with that treaty Today we're going to focus more on the Maori settlement of Aotearoa Uh, Talk about their way of life before the European explorers arrived And then, of course, how life changed for the Māori once the Europeans finally did turn up Now, before we begin, there are a few things I want to mention This episode deals with a a complex and sensitive area of history And while I have done my best to research things uh, fully and properly I apologise in advance for the, uh, for the missteps, uh, misinterpretations and mistakes I make, particularly when it comes to te reo Māori, the Māori language, which uh, I've tried to include when it's relevant and appropriate, but at the end of the day, I'm not a Kiwi. I don't have close connections to Aotearoa New Zealand, familial or cultural or otherwise. I'm little more than just a neighbour, really, just another idiot Aussie. And so this means that when I, I'm talking about the history of Aotearoa I don't have first-hand experience of Kiwi life. I don't read Kiwi newspapers. I don't have the same, same understanding of Kiwi culture that I do Australian culture, obviously. So with that in mind, I really do apologize in advance for anything that I say that it comes off as insensitive or ill-informed. And all I can say that, uh, is that this comes from ignorance and not malice. Uh, but I know that I know that Waitangi Day is coming up in around a week, and I know that all the issues that we're going to talk about today are in the public eye at this time of year. And so I do I do hope that I do them justice talking about them today. And in any case, honestly, learning about Kiwi history, Maori, Pakeha, and, and and Kiwi history more broadly altogether, it's been very interesting and very rewarding for me as as an Australian. And as much as I like any self respecting Aussie will mock Kiwis at more or less every opportunity, I do. I very sincerely have a deeply held respect and affection for for uh, the neighbours that we have across the Tasman. And with that in mind, I want to say kia ora and thank you to all my Kiwi listeners tuning in every week and in particular, Samantha Jury, Sam Whitehead. Uh, these two specifically requested a chat about the Māori settlement of Aotearoa. But most of all, I want to thank once again Alert Listener Jordan Coxhead, who sent through a comprehensive list of resources for me to get across when it came when it comes to Kiwi history. Uh, this episode, as well as next week's, uh, they really were in in a very real sense brought to you by old mate Jordan, uh, as he enabled me to fully research them in a manner that that uh, well, quite honestly, calls the name of the podcast into question. I, I hesitate to I hesitate to admit. Anyway. Let's get into it here. Let's get stuck into a bit of Kiwi history, talk about the settlement of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the mid-14th century, sometime around the year 1350 or so. And uh, it was around that time that the first human settlers arrived on the islands that would go on to become known as Aotearoa, New Zealand. Before this, these islands had been the last major land masses on the face of the planet to lack a permanent ...human population. All the way through to the mid-14th century, no one was living on Aotearoa, New Zealand. It was just plants and animals, there, there were birds, there were fish, there were bats, there were no land-based mammals, interestingly, uh, and certainly no humans. Humans are relative newcomers uh, in, in you know, the broad sweep of history... Uh, to uh, to Aotearoa and the first people to settle on Aotearoa were as I say the Maori who its thought descended from from explorers that uh, initially departed Taiwan thousands and thousands of years ago around 2500 BCE so over 4000 years ago uh these explorers made their way across Southeast Asia eventually into and across the Pacific and uh these Polynesian travellers, they sailed across the open ocean in great outrigger canoes, navigating by wind and wave and star. And across the centuries, they spread out across the islands of the Pacific, across Indonesia, into the Philippines, uh, to Melanesia, from there to Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, across the uh, across the Pacific, further onwards to the Cook Islands and Tahiti. Polynesians made it as far as Hawaii in the north and Rapa Nui Easter Island in the southeast. And at each of these islands that they stopped at, all the ones along the way, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, all the all the islands we've talked about here, some number of them, some number of these migrants, they decided to settle and stay while, of course, others moved on. And in this way, Polynesian cultures and languages, of course, shifted and evolved from island to island, from people to people. As time passed and they, they, the culture that they had brought to their islands slowly diverged and changed and, and adapted. But by around the year 900 CE, the Pacific had been more or less fully explored and settled except for... Aotearoa, New Zealand, which remained uninhabited by humans, as I say, until around the 14th century when Polynesian migrants finally ventured further south than ever before and came across what they named the land of the long white cloud, Aotearoa. Traditional Māori histories tell of the legendary explorer and navigator Kupe and his wife Kura Marotini, who left, uh, left an island called Hawaiki. We're not too sure where or what this island was, and they left uh, maybe to escape conflict there, or perhaps to hunt a colossal octopus, or maybe both. The stories vary depending on, on who's telling them. But Kupe and uh, Kura Marotani, they took with them the, the people who wished to join them, and they sailed until they discovered what we now know to be the North Island of New Zealand. And the story goes that uh, as they approached, Kura Marotini, uh named the land by exclaiming, Hi Aotearoa! Uh, which means a long white cloud, and Aotearoa has been the name that some Māori have used to refer to the land ever since. Uh, As for the name Māori, this is not what the Māori referred to themselves as before contact with Europeans in the outside world. Interestingly, interestingly, Māori in Te Reo Māori, the Māori language, it means normal or ordinary. And as there was no one with whom to compare themselves, these early inhabitants of Aotearoa, they didn't call themselves... Normal. They didn't call themselves ordinary, they didn't call themselves Māori. This term only uh, only came into use, as I say, after Europeans arrived in Aotearoa as, uh, as, a, as a comparative term, as a term to uh, draw distinctions between the people who already lived there and, and the people who are now arriving from over the sea. Um, but sometimes uh, the original inhabitants of the land, the generations of people who lived in Aotearoa before European colonisation, uh, are referred to as the Tangata Fenua, which uh, translates as the people of the land. Now, this is a term that has a lot of different meanings. It can be used to describe uh, the Maori before they called themselves Maori, but then it's also still used today to just, to describe Maori broadly in in the 21st century. There's a lot going on with this term Tangata whenua. I don't fully understand all of its implications and, and nuances, but uh, I do know that in, in in many instances it's used to um uh, to to refer to the Maori people before they were known as the the Maori, right? The original inhabitants of New Zealand. Anyway. In the wake of the arrival of, of Kupe and Kura Aotearoa Altiro was settled permanently. And this established, as I say, the, the Maori civilization, which to begin with, at least, was principally focused on the northern part of the north of the North Island. But we'll, we'll talk more about that later on. Before we wrap up the story of Kupe altogether, um, it's worth asking the question, was this bloke actually a real person or was he a figure of myth and legend? That remains somewhat uncertain. Um, he, he may have existed. It, it's, it's probable that he did. But uh, there are certainly all sorts of stories about him that, uh, you know, they've chopped and changed over the years across countless generational retellings and, and do bear the hallmarks of, of myth and legend. But even if he is a, a, a semi-mythological, a semi-legendary figure, there is reason to believe that the that, that coupé did exist uh, as a real historical person, even if a lot of his exploits and, uh, and a lot of the tales about him perhaps have, uh, have more been the, the product of, again, countless retellings over the generations. But uh, for the people who would go on to become known as the Maori, uh, after their arrival in Aotearoa, uh, the very first humans to do so, they, uh, they made the place their own but faced uh, uh, all sorts of new challenges that they hadn't come across before as new arrivals. Aotearoa was very, very different to the other Pacific islands that Polynesians had settled for one. It was huge. And this might seem surprising because I think most people sort of conceptualize New Zealand as being quite a small nation, but there are a couple of things here. First of all, when you compare it with all of the other Polynesian islands that had been settled by uh, by explorers across the Pacific over the last over the last few centuries, Aotearoa is a lot bigger than, than the tiny islands that dot the Pacific. But also, Aotearoa is just a lot bigger than people realize, I think. Even today, people kind of forget how big New Zealand is. Tucked away in the corner of most world maps, or sometimes left off them altogether. It's easy to forget that Aotearoa is bigger than the United Kingdom. It's not a very small country. Um, but another thing that it has uh, in common with the UK, incidentally, um, something that Māori had to learn to adapt to, was the climate. Because New Zealand is cold. It's cold and it's windy and it's rainy. It's very different to the sunny tropical islands of Polynesia. And as a result, it took a long time for the Maori to adjust their agricultural practices to suit the colder climate of their new home. They'd brought with them plants and seeds to to cultivate crops, but it was very difficult to grow the, the sweet potatoes and the yams and the gourds that they were used to cultivating in their former homelands. Now, luckily for them, at least, Aotearoa provided food in another form, a large and easily hunted game that had never encountered humans before and therefore was very straightforward to hunt and to eat. New Zealand didn't have any native land mammals. The only mammals native to New Zealand are bats and dolphins. There's nothing scurrying around on the ground. But the Māori, they had an abundance of birds and fish to eat, and most notably the moa. A huge, flightless bird from the same family as the ostrich and the emu, moa were enormous—three metres in height, two hundred kilograms in, in weight—and there was good eating on those things. I'll tell you, too good, in fact. The the tangata whenua—they hunted the moa to extinction. The last moa died sometime in the in the mid fifteenth century. And in fact, it wasn't just the moa. The arrival of the Maori uh, was a, a death sentence for. Many species of birds in Altiroa, Maori hunters drove them to extinction within a, within a few hundred years as they adapted to their uh, to their new homeland. But by the stage that uh, they were beginning to run out of uh, of game like the moa, Maori had adapted their farming techniques to suit their new home, and so were were pretty well set up for the long term, even if the moa that they'd munched their way through, you know, weren't um the the maori had also spread further and further south throughout the islands i mentioned that uh, at the beginning most of the maori population was concentrated in the north island and further in the northern part of the north island but more and more people spread south uh, sailing across to the south island and in around 1500 and around the year 1500 even further some of them even crossed the sea again to what we today call the chatham islands and there uh, these migrants they developed their own language, their own pacifist culture, and they became the Moriori. We'll uh, we'll come back to them in due course. So uh, keep them in your mind. Anyway, the Maori who moved to the South Island they had a much much harder time when it came to farming and cultivation, given that the South Island is even colder and even more unforgiving than uh, than the North Island. South Island Maori were able to uh, they were able to cultivate uh, the, the plants they brought in to a limited extent, but mainly they cultivated native plants for food in addition to their, their hunting and their fishing. But again, as we've mentioned, the bulk of the Māori population concentrated in the north of the North Island where the, where the climate was the easiest to adapt to. And all in all, across, uh, across both islands of Aotearoa, um, the Māori population it peaked at around 100,000 uh, people or so, or perhaps even more, uh, to be honest. We're not 100% sure, but that's, that's the rough estimate that we have. And as we begin now to talk about some of the, uh, the 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 social the cultural aspects of of maori history i, I want to make a quick note here that it's not really possible to speak about the maori as though they're one giant monolith uh, all sharing the same culture and history and, and set of values uh, dialects, so on there there are broad shared cultural concepts that that unify the maori uh the concept of mana for instance uh, it was and is central to maori culture i'm not an expert i'm probably not the best person to talk about mana But uh, mana is, as far as I understand it, it's an energy or a force or a power that the the Māori believe permeates everything and and everyone. Um, A person's personal mana signifies their authority, their respect, their standing. But mana is also held by groups of people or or places or even things. Again, I'm not the best person to talk about this sort of thing for for many reasons. But the point I'm I'm making here is that Māori, across Aotearoa, they did share some, many, cultural customs, uh, beliefs and, and, and practices, in addition to having specific regional differences and diversities. It's very easy to lump historical Māori together, and even contemporary Māori together as just being this great big cultural monolith, but that isn't the case, that wasn't the case, and it's certainly not what I'm trying to talk about here. But, uh, in the interests of of keeping this episode to a reasonable length, um, as we talk more about the Maori civilization before Europeans arrived, uh, we'll speak in general terms. We'll speak in general terms about the Maori who lived in Aotearoa for the centuries, the hundreds of years before contact with Europe. And what we know of the Maori civilization uh, between their arrival in the mid fourteenth century and the arrival of European explorers in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, it comes from, as I mentioned before a rich tradition of Māori oral history, which was and still is a huge part of Māori culture. While the Māori lacked a writing system, uh, stories and histories and myths and legends, they were passed down from generation to generation with, with speaking and oration being one of the most respected skills amongst the Māori. I can tell you a little bit about Tanganawhinua civilization before European contact, but I, I will say again, I'm not an expert by any means. And while I have tried to research this as thoroughly as possible, I might still get some stuff wrong. And if I do, I apologize. I don't want to be just a, you know, yet another white man telling indigenous populations their business. So if, if this synthesis and, and summary of Māori culture and history is inaccurate or incorrect, uh, I really am very genuinely sorry. I did my best um, and I do want to know if there are things that uh, that I should correct or clarify. But uh, anyway, Māori, Māori society is and was, broadly speaking, organized into three different units. Firstly, there's the whanau, the, uh, the, the family or the extended family, usually usually between 20 and 30 people across several generations. It's grandma, grandpa, they're in there along with the grandkids, aunts, uncles, cousins, that sort of thing. And, uh, and multiple whanau, they make up a hapu. The, uh, the tribe or, or, or the clan. And as you can imagine, with how families work, it's, uh, it's very possible to be a member, member of multiple hapu, depending on the makeup of your funa. Of your hapu, uh, back in the day, would uh, often consist of village-like settlements, all linked with bonds of family and, and culture and history. And they would operate reasonably independently of one another, uh, with, uh, with a chief at the helm. Uh, hapu sometimes lived in or near pa defensive encampments usually hill forts uh, which we use to defend themselves from attacks uh, from other hapu or sometimes from from iwi themselves and iwi is the third and the largest unit unit in uh, in maori society uh, a nation uh, sometimes also described as a tribe or, or as a confederation of tribes of, of 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 hapu iwi are ancestral groups that have a shared ancestry a shared homeland uh, on aotearoa and while they're not as as tightly knit as as hapu or whanau, um, iwi, still represent groups of self determined Maori. Each iwi uh, has its own culture, its own traditions, and still today are a big part of Maori and and Kiwi society uh, through to the very, through to this very day, of the twenty first century. But uh, I am making this sound very neat and tidy here, Uh, as neat and tidy as these societal units sound. In reality, things are much messier. Iwi had and still have overlapping homeland, which of course leads to conflict. And and even within Iwi, hapu would go to war with one another over land or resources. And given that it's possible to be a member of multiple hapu, you can imagine the complexities involved with, with Maori politics and warfare. And these complexities, of course, they still exist today. Um, but that is, broadly speaking, the, uh, the, the makeup of Māori society. Whānau which make up hapu, which make up iwi. But uh, the, the, the complex nature of, of Māori society was about to become even more complex. These, these complexities were, were compounded and confused even further when Europeans began to arrive in Aotearoa.
0: Ready to pop the question?
1: European arrivals in Aotearoa took place across three stages, and each stage was significant for its own reasons, as as we'll talk about. And the very first contact that Tangara had with Europeans took place in 1642, when the Dutch explorer Abel Tasman arrived on the shores of Aotearoa, sailing two ships on behalf of the Dutch exploring the South Pacific. Tasman, for whom both the Tasman Sea and Tasmania are named, He didn't even set foot on dry land during this visit, but it was a very important visit all the same, because it was the first time in history that the Maori had ever seen Europeans. As Tasman sailed into what is now Golden Bay in New Zealand's South Island, he encountered people from an iwi called the Nyati Tumata Kokiri, and the Nyati Tumata Kokiri didn't write anything down about this encounter, because, again, the Maori didn't have access to writing at this stage. So we've only got Tasman's account to go by, and according to him, this encounter was not a friendly one. After spotting two enormous Dutch sailing ships approaching their shores, the, Ny- the Nyati Tumata Kokiri, they rowed out in two of their waka uh, canoes to challenge the visitors and, and try to figure out what their intentions were. Now, Tasman responded to the fierce bellows and the, and the trumpeting of conch shells from the Nyata Tumata Kokiri by ordering his soldiers to blow on their own trumpets before then firing a round from his ship's cannons. Now, this was meant, according to Tasman, to be a respectful salute from the Dutch. Uh, but, as you can imagine, there was a bit of a cultural misunderstanding. And the Nyati Tumata Kokiri, they didn't take it as a respectful salute. They took it as a call to arms. Tasman was hoping to trade for supplies and water with uh, Nyata, uh, Nyati Tumata Kokiri, uh, but the locals, they weren't having any of it. The next day, they uh, launched 11 waka. They attacked a smaller rowboat that was shutt- shuttling Dutch sailors between the two ships. And while they did this, they attacked and killed four Dutchmen. Tasman ordered his crew to fire on the Māori in response, killing some of them as well. And after this... The Ngāti they retreated, uh, as for that matter, did the Dutch, leaving with little more than rough sketches of the western coasts of the north and the south islands of what would go on to become known as New Zealand. And that was that. That was the first ever encounter between Europeans and Māori. And you can only imagine how the Ngāti would have thought and, and, and felt about it afterwards. These weird, pale people on the biggest ships they'd ever seen, causing loud blasts of fire and smoke that... Killed some of them out of nowhere. But the story of Tasman's visit didn't survive uh, in their oral history. So again, we've only got Tasman's account that he wrote about it later to, to go on. It was over a century after this, before Europeans visited Aotearoa uh, again. And by this stage, it had become known as New Zealand to European explorers. Uh, Dutch cartographers ignored uh, Tasman's suggested name of Statenland named after the States General of the Netherlands, and instead they called it New Zealand, named after Zealand, a, uh, a Dutch province, Old Zealand, if you like. But so uh, when it comes to the second encounter that the Māori had with uh, with Europeans, and when it comes to the identity of the second European visitor to the shores of Aotearoa, we're going to start talking about a bloke that, uh, alertlessness of half our history, will... Almost certainly recognise and remember because it was, of course, the second visitor to Aotearoa from Europe was none other than a fellow we've met before on the podcast, the first person in recorded history to circumnavigate and map out New Zealand, Captain James Cook. Although he was only a lieutenant when he first arrived in in 1769 on the uh, the, the endeavour, he was sent to search for Terra Australis Incognita, a mythical and ultimately non-existent massive southern continent that was supposed to balance out all the land in the Northern Hemisphere. We talked at length about Cook's voyages in episodes uh, 259, 260, Get Across Them, so we won't won't spend too long talking about them here. But the long and the short of it is this. Cook landed on Aotearoa on the 7th of October 1769 in a place known today as Poverty Bay. And sadly, his initial encounters with the local Maori went about as well as Tasman's did. Europeans and Maori came into conflict once again, and seven or eight Maori were killed by Cook's men. He departed the uh, he, he departed Poverty Bay and a week or so later after traveling to Anuara Bay, Cook was able to meet and communicate uh, on a more positive footing with some of the Maori there, aided as he was by Tupaya, a bloke that Cook had brought with him uh, brought along with him from Tahiti. and Tupaya uh, as a Tahitian, his uh, his language was mutually intelligible enough with Tiir Maori. That uh, he was able to translate, he was able to act as as a translator between uh, between the Europeans and uh, and the Maori, and as a result, this second round of interactions were a lot more peaceful, and lo- and the locals allowed Cook and his crew to gather supplies and to take water back to their ships from from the from their land from Aotearoa. Cook uh, continued to sail around New Zealand. He made a very very accurate map of its coastline, although he did make a few mistakes. He missed the fact that uh, that Stuart Stewart Island was you know an island he marked it down on his map as a, a promontory instead but all the same his sea charts were as as good as ever that is one of the things that cook is remembered for being an immensely skilled navigator and cartographer and uh, as cook sailed around altiroa mapping out its coastline and uh, and drawing up these charts he met with and traded with and in some cases sadly fought and killed the maori but ultimately claimed possession of New Zealand for Great Britain. And then in March 770, he sailed off westwards towards Australia or New Holland, as it was known at the time. And again, you can hear more about uh, what happened to him after that in those episodes I mentioned before, 259, uh, 260, get across them. But he took home, uh, back to Britain with him, stories of the rich and abundant resources that Aotearoa held. And this, of course, was one of the factors that brought on the slow, but eventual, British colonisation of New Zealand. And so that was the second encounter that the tangara Whenua had with Europeans and from that point the third stage of European contact would change everything from the Maori. Because the third stage was very very different to the first two. The first one was brief, it was unpleasant but it was significant in that it was the first. The second was a little bit less brief and a little bit less unpleasant in some cases, but uh, it paved the way for the third and, I guess in some respects, final stage of, uh, of contact between Māori and, uh, and Europeans, in that Cook's voyage uh, and, and visit to Aotearoa was what opened the doors for the colonisation of New Zealand by European settlers. Around the turn of the 19th century, European whalers and sealers began to visit Aotearoa, especially after the spread of Cook's Tales of the Waters, teeming with fish and whales and seals. But these Europeans, they landed on New Zealand shores and established trading posts, places for whaling and sealing ships to dock and to resupply. And the people who visited, they traded with the Māori as well. And, And this new trade, it changed the Māori forever. And it changed them for both better and for worse. There were positive aspects that this trade brought to the Maori civilization. They gained access to uh, to, to brand new technologies, uh, textiles like cotton, tools made of uh, of iron and steel. But most important of all, uh, the biggest positive to come about for the Maori population in Aotearoa was that they gained access to new food sources. Most notably, the pig and the potato. Pigs and potatoes changed Māori life forever. We already talked about the difficulties that the Tangara whenua had in uh, in feeding themselves uh, in their new home of Aotearoa, hunting species to extinction, adapting their agriculture to, to Aotearoa's climate. Well, they didn't have to worry about that anymore once pigs and potatoes turned up, because as terrible as it was for the natural environment of New Zealand, pigs flourished in Aotearoa and gave Māori an all-new food source, as indeed did the potato, which grew happily in the cold Kiwi climate. Uh, it was a much hardier and much more robust crop than the than the ones that the Maori had been nursing for generations like the sweet potato. And this new and improved access to food completely changed the Maori civilization, um, but as I say, it wasn't all upside. They may have had full bellies, but the Maori were now also exposed to far more destructive things that the Europeans brought with them. and uh, that's really saying something because pigs are... Extremely destructive animals. Um, they're obviously a you know, terrific source of food, um, but they are extremely damaging uh, to native habitats. Wherever they've been introduced, feral pigs have become huge environmental problems. But again, they weren't even close to the most destructive things that the uh, that the Europeans brought with them. Because the Europeans also brought, of course, booze and tobacco. And these vices were one thing, but on top of this, Europeans also brought Exotic diseases against which the the, the Maori had no natural immunity. Smallpox, tuberculosis, syphilis, gonorrhea, the list goes on. These diseases ripped through the Maori population, devastating them, killing thousands upon thousands of people. But even that wasn't the most destructive thing that the Europeans brought with them. The thing brought by the Europeans that claimed more Māori lives than anything else. It wasn't booze, it wasn't it wasn't tobacco, it wasn't disease. It was a device purpose-built to do nothing but kill. It was the musket. Warfare was a huge part of the culture of Tangata Fenua, uh, with hapu and iwi in, in regular conflict with one another. It was part of the Māori way of life. Battles were fought, and they were fought with clubs and spears and axes, And while a great many people died in these battles, um, the simple fact of the matter is that it is hard to kill a lot of people with an axe or a spear or a club compared to, for instance, a musket. Muskets are a lot more effective at killing a lot more people. And when Māori started to get their hands on them for the first time, they used them to do just this. Kill more people than ever before. And this began a conflict known as the musket wars, where Maori iwi went to war with one another using muskets to great effect to kill each other on a scale that had never been seen before in Aotearoa. Arangatira, a chief of the Nyapui iwi called Hongihika, was amongst the first to realise the real value of these new weapons to his iwi's ambitions. And so the Nyapui, they traded for as many of the things as they could get their hands on. Hongihika le- then led the Nyapui into war with rival Iwi, seeking to get back at them or even the score from past conflicts. And I don't have to tell you how it went. Tangana Fenua were used to lining up with basic weapons and hitting and stabbing at each other. But now one side is lining up with their axes and their spears and their clubs and whatever else, and at a distance the other lo- other, other side is lining up with muskets and shooting their enemies to death. Hika and the, and the Nyapui, they helped to kick off an arms race across northern New Zealand. Hongihika is a, a very interesting figure. We'll, we'll have to get across him in more detail at some point. But with, with his very eager adoption of the, of the latest technology in, uh, in, in gunpowder weaponry, this arms race escalated into the Musket Wars. As iwi were defeated by those who had muskets like the Ngāpuhi, these iwi these defeated iwi they also sought to obtain muskets for themselves so so they could go after their rivals who were still easy pickings because they didn't have them yet. And so the musket wars saw muskets spread like wildfire across the iwi of northern Aotearoa from north to south generally speaking until almost the entire North Island and much of the south saw musket armed Tangata Whenua fighting against one another. Now, again, culturally speaking, iwi fighting one another was a a part of the Māori way of life, but it had never been done in this way, and the musket wars meant that the Māori would never be the same again. There was bloodshed and destruction on an unprecedented scale, and tens upon thousands of Māori died as a result of the introduction of the musket. But it wasn't just the Māori who died. Remember the Moriori, the the Maori offshoots who settled on the Chatham Islands? Well, in 1835, three iwi, the Nyati Matunga, the Nyati Toa, and the Nyati Tama, they sailed across to these islands, and they killed or enslaved the pacifist Moriori, almost wiping them out altogether in a near-genocidal act powered by the European musket. The Moriori didn't even attempt to defend themselves. They were so committed to their pacifist lifestyles, and today, as a result, there are fewer than a thousand Moriori people remaining on earth all together. The near extermination of the Moriori at the hands of the Maori has had some very interesting and very unfortunate consequences for Maori history, however, because today many Pakia, Kiwis of, uh, of European descent, they use the Moriori genocide to justify the colonization of New Zealand. Again, my, my unfamiliarity with Kiwi culture and Kiwi society uh, makes it difficult for me to tell you exactly how many Pakia believe this. Uh, some number, I don't know, I don't think that it's a majority of Kiwis, but however many it is, they are a very, very vo- vocal group. And they, as I say, weaponize this part of Māori history in order to excuse or justify. Um, The unpleasant parts of their own history as the descendants of of, of colonists and settlers. These Pākia, they say that, well, if the Māori can act as vicious murdering invaders in in their genocide of of the Moriori, what was wrong with the fact that we did it then? I can't do the mental gymnastics required to understand this as as a justification for the colonization, the exploitation, and the murder of Aotearoa's indigenous people. It is not okay for the Maori to have invaded, attacked, and killed the Moriori. I'm not debating that point. I'm in agreement with these people on that point. But the fact that the Maori did this does not then make it okay for Europeans to do it to them. It is an awful justification. Like any whataboutism, it is just a confession and I'm not defending the Nyati Mutunga, the, the nyati Toa, and the, nyati, and the nyati Tama for the near extermination of the Moriori. I condemn this genocide in the strongest possible terms. But I also condemn, as I say, the colonization, the exploitation, and the murder of the Maori as well. History is messy. It's not black and white. And, and mindless political tribalism gets us nowhere in attempting to unravel issues like these, especially when it comes to nations that have a colonial past. Australia is one of these nations, and, and I've seen I see every day the the, the legacy of, of our colonial history and I see the, the the divisions that are sown by this us versus them mentality when it comes to trying to grapple with the, the darker parts of our history. So if you are listening as one of those Pakia who who for whatever reason believes that the Moriori genocide has a strong relevance when it comes to things like the European colonisation of New Zealand, the Treaty of Waitangi, the, the, the New Zealand wars, and, and all of the other difficult parts of Kiwi history. If you really do believe that, I invite you to ask yourself, why? Why is this something that you keep bringing up? Why is it something pres- that's presented as an excuse or a justification for British imperialism in Aotearoa? Is it actually relevant or is it just easier to bury your head in the sand and claim, oh, well, they started it like a misbehaving school kid? I also come from a nation that has has had more of its fair share of issues with colonization and the mistreatment and murder of Indigenous people. And I know, as a descendant of the colonial oppressors, that it is very difficult to accept the truth that you are the beneficiary of an oppressive political system that has At best, systematically disenfranchised people, and at worst, at worst, simply murdered them. But I want you to think about this. It is an act of great courage to come forward and accept your nation's history for what it is, to recognize the actions of your ancestors and their effects on the world in which you live today. Even if you bear no specific personal, individual responsibility the recognition of your people's role in your nation's history is a braver thing to do than, again, just burying your head in the sand. Now, this might sound like I'm trying to say that the descendants of settlers like me are somehow also victims of colonisation. We're not. That's not my point. My point is this. The world gains nothing when we ignore the lessons that history is attempting to teach us. And the lesson of the Moriori Genocide should not be that it was somehow then okay to mistreat and murder the Māori just because they mistreated and murdered the Māori Anyway, as a result of the musket wars enveloping New Zealand, tens of thousands of Māori, as I say they, died as Iwi fought Iwi with the weapons that Europeans sold them. And between combat deaths and the deaths brought about by disease, it's estimated that the Māori population dropped by as much as 30% during this period. A horrific and a senseless waste of life, catalyzed by the introduction of the musket, but this wasn't the only enormous change that came to the Māori people during the musket wars. It was perhaps the most obvious because of the enormous death toll, but there are other factors that we need to talk about as well. Because this enormous, and I really do mean enormous, this incomprehensibly furious demand for muskets had a huge impact on the Māori way of life, and it sped on some drastic changes to the culture and society of Aotearoa more broadly. These changes didn't happen everywhere, it's, it's worth saying. In, in areas that were further from the coast, for instance, in areas that were further from European contact, life went on in many ways just as before for the, for the Tangana whenua. But in areas more commonly inhabited by Europeans, things changed swiftly and profoundly and irreversibly, again, all because of these muskets. Firstly, the Māori economy shifted, with a new focus on creating export goods with which to trade for muskets. Māori farmed far more food than they themselves needed, principally, once again, pigs and potatoes, uh, to trade with European settlers, especially those over in New South Wales, where penal colonies were always hungry for extra food. Māori also focused on their primary industries, like timber and flax, to create more, more trade goods, more goods than they needed, so they could sell them and buy more muskets. This wasn't something that the Maori were able to do before the uh, the introdu- int- introduction of of, uh, of European goods like pigs and potatoes. Before that, the Maori were largely subsistence farmers. They they grew enough to feed themselves and, and nothing more. But with the fact that pigs and potatoes were much easier to cultivate than any other food source the Māori had had before this, it meant that they were able to produce more food than ever before and sell off that surplus in addition to the surpluses of of, of other goods that they worked on to then just buy more muskets to continue to fight their, their wars between different iwi. But these industries that supported the musket trade on the Māori side of things, these industries were powered by slave labour, and particularly slaves that were captured during the musket wars, meaning that winning battles against other iwi didn't just result in territorial gains, but also in economic gains, as prisoners taken during these battles became slaves and further bolstered your workforce so you could produce more goods to trade for even more muskets. So, Due to the musket wars, the Māori economy was revolutionised. It went from subsistence farming to an export-focused economy, enabled solely, as I say, by the food surplus brought on by the cultivation of pigs and potatoes. Additionally, it wasn't just economic changes that the Māori underwent. The social and cultural makeup of Māori settlements changed as they actively started to encourage Europeans to come and live amongst them. Now this may surprise you, right? An indigenous population openly wanting these uh, the, these colonists, these settlers, to come and live amongst them and, in, in, and integrate into their societies. It's not something that we see all that often in colonial histories. But the Maori had a very, very good reason for wanting uh, Pakia to be to be part of their uh, of, of their settlements because Europeans had a much much easier time accessing and trading for muskets. So. Māori wanted them around to essentially negotiate with traders on their behalf, act as middlemen, gain the better prices that were always offered to Europeans rather than to Māori. And I'll tell you this, there were plenty of Europeans who didn't mind the idea of settling down and integrating themselves into Māori society. Uh, There were sailors who had had enough of life on sea, jumped ship and disappeared into into Māori civilization. There were... uh, escaped convicts from Australia who were very keen to start new lives as, as far away as they could from British authority but most important of all were a group of people that were very very keen to ingratiate themselves amongst the Maori for a different reason altogether the Christian missionaries in 1814 Anglican missionaries began to travel to New Zealand attempting to spread Christianity amongst the Maori and in their view civilize them now some Maori converted to Christianity some didn't but, The reason that these missionaries were popular wasn't necessarily the good news they were bringing with them. It was because, again, having Europeans around made it much easier to trade with other Europeans, mainly for muskets, than it would have been otherwise. And as a result, generally speaking, missionaries were accepted into many Maori societies for uh, pragmatic reasons, in many cases, rather than religious ones. Additionally, and very importantly, uh, quite aside from their religious mes- messages, um, these Christian missionaries also brought literacy to the Māori, with some Māori, like the bloke I mentioned before, Hongi Hika, extremely keen to establish a Māori alphabet and dictionary. And so, to their credit, the missionaries brought something that was of great value to the Māori when they brought literacy and reading and writing to, uh, to the Tangata Fenua. The Māori were able to write down and and, and read and and share their stories and their histories in a way that they'd never been able to before. But it wasn't all positive when it came to the missionaries because in addition to them enabling the musket trade and bringing more muskets than ever before into the hands of, uh, of, of, of Māori so they could go and kill each other, Christian missionaries also brought the usual bag of tricks that would invariably be used against indigenous populations everywhere, principally cultural suppression and erasure. Christian missionaries preached against what they considered to be the barbaric Māori way of life and uh, very deliberately eroded their customs and their traditions and their values. And this shouldn't come as a surprise. It's something we've seen happen more or less anywhere and everywhere missionaries are sent around the world, Australia, the Americas, Africa, even within Europe, within the British Isles even. English Protestants suppressed Irish and Scottish Catholics in a in a similar, a similar way to their treatment of people like the Māori, suppressing their culture and their language, taking their land. This is... This is textbook imperialism. But all the same, despite the introduction of diseases and muskets, despite the huge numbers of deaths suffered by the Tangata whenua across Aotearoa, despite missionaries moving in to suppress their culture and their way of life, in the early to mid-19th century, Aotearoa was still very firmly Māori land. The musket wars had devastated Māori iwi across both islands, as had these introduced diseases, but even so... Māori outnumbered Pākehā in New Zealand by as, as much as 40 or 50 to 1. Māori rangatira, the chieftains, they were the ones holding power, they made decisions, they benefited from trade and despite the continued presence of Europeans in New Zealand, despite the Māori population by falling again by again up to 30%, the Māori were still the ones that called the shots in their homeland. So how and why did New Zealand become a British colony? How and why did Aotearoa, a land inhabited and ruled by Maori, end up as a British possession? How and why were the Maori disempowered and disenfranchised? Well, to answer those questions and many more besides, we turn to the next chapter in the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. We turn to look at the most important document in Kiwi history, the Treaty of Waitangi. Be sure to come back next week as we talk about the treaty, its background, its origin, its framing, its composition, its signing, and of course, its consequences, both back then in the 19th century when it was signed, and today in the 21st century. As I said at the top of the show, Waitangi Day is coming up on the 6th of February, and so with that in mind, now is a very good time to be talking about the treaty and its legacy And so with that in mind, I hope to have you back here with me next week when we continue the history of Aotearoa New Zealand and get across the Treaty of Waitangi. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the settlement of Aotearoa New Zealand. And uh, it's a story that, of course, we haven't finished, as I say, back next week as we talk about the Treaty of Waitangi and... uh, and its monumental importance in in Kiwi history. But I do hope you enjoyed um, this chapter of Kiwi history, and I do hope that I did a uh, decent enough job of getting across it. Uh, I, I will confess to a certain level of nervousness in addressing this topic. Um, I did take the requests to talk about the more serious aspects of, uh, of Kiwi history uh, very, well, se- seriously. And uh, I hope I've done a decent job. This was... This was not half-ass history, I will tell you that. This was much closer to full-ass history than the, the podcast usually is. And um, I, I hope I've acquitted myself very well. Uh, I hope I've done a decent job. I hope I've represented the history of uh, of, uh, of of my neighbours to the east uh, in, in, in the best way that I could. And I would love to hear your feedback, particularly from any Kiwis who are listening, particularly from any Maori who are listening and, and may have uh, you know feedback, whether it's positive or negative, to give me. I, I, I do really want to hear it. Um, the more I read about the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand and, and its history The more fascinated I am by it And uh, and the more I want to talk about it But I decided to really um, Take this topic And this series of topics we're talking about um, Rather more seriously than usual And uh, as I say I, I, I hope I did a good enough job Because I was bloody nervous about recording this one uh, I, I tried very hard to get it right So you can let me know how I did Anyway I want to thank you for listening, uh, whether I did a good or a bad job, you hear at the end, and, uh, and, and, I, and I appreciate that immensely, so thanks for being here. Um, once again, I want to thank all of the Kiwis who have, uh, who have been in touch and, uh, and requested topics from their history. I'll, I'll be doing plenty more in the in, in the future. It's, we're not just going to wrap things up after next week with the Treaty of Waitangi. There'll be, there'll be lots more Kiwi history down the down the road because I know, I know how many Kiwis listen and, and you're all immensely valued listeners of the show, as, as deeply un-Australian as it is for me to say this and be so convivial uh, with uh, with Kiwis across the ditch. But look, it's not just the Kiwis who I appreciate listening. It's everyone, old listeners and new listeners alike. It it really is, as I say every week, great to have you along. And uh, I want to thank the people who are supporting me specifically on Patreon, uh, people who are joining up for access to uh, all sorts of behind-the-scenes stuff, uncut episodes, show notes, uh, early access, ad-free listening, all sorts. Uh, This week we've had uh, a fine haul of, of Patreon members signing up. We've had Phoebe Cox, Lucy... Antonio Rocha-Pinto, Kathy Griffin, and Jord Merrick, who signed up at the highest tier. Jord will be receiving uh, the full bevy of exclusive Patreon-only merch, uh, assuming, of course, that Jord sticks around for the three months that it takes to uh, to snag this sort of stuff. If you want to join their exalted ranks, patreon.com slash half history, it'd be great to, uh, to to have you join uh, join the Patreon and, and and gain access to all the stuff that I talked about. But even if you don't, my appreciation uh, is not lessened for you listening in uh, as you do every week thank you for being part of half our history tell your friends tell your enemies tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent and uh, for the kiwis out there if, at this time of year as i'm sure i mean every end of january every year the debate fla- flares up in australia about our colonial past and our, and our relationship with our history i have to imagine the same thing happens uh, in in aotearoa when it comes to you know the time around waitangi day so if you've got people in your life who perhaps could benefit from learning a thing or two about Kiwi history, well, maybe send this episode their way, as insufferable as it must be for, you know, to be hearing this stuff from an Australian and having an Australian teach them their business. Maybe it will uh, help them open their eyes to some of the realities of the of the history of, of, of your country. And again, that's assuming that I actually did a decent job in representing that history, which is another matter entirely. So we'll see how we go. Anyway. Back next week, of course, um, with the history of the Treaty of Waitangi. So I'm hoping to have your company then. But until then, leaving you with a question uh, posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Rusty Cougar Mama, which is quite a journey to go on in in terms of Reddit usernames. And Rusty Cougar Mama wants to know, at what point does a kiwi hatch from the fruit and become the bird?